Amen. Well, have you ever seen something in nature that was so amazing, it was just so inspiring, that you felt like God was revealing something to you in that moment in a very special way, like you're looking at a sunset on a ride home. You're looking at a sunset on a ride home, and it's just breathtaking. It's just, it's beautiful, and it's almost like God is there with you just speaking to you, just comforting you because of the magnificence of creation. Well, David is recounting this kind of experience in Psalm 19. He's observing the universe, and he's looking at the heavens, the great expanse, and all that happens within it, and he's entranced, and he's mesmerized by it. And he's explaining how creation is like a book, and is pouring out speech about who God is. And one writer comments, it's as if God has written this letter of creation to us to show us how awesome and how powerful he is. And in fact, Paul tells us that this is the case. In Romans 1.20, we read that God has revealed his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature in creation in such a way that no one is without excuse. This is what is known as God's general revelation. He's revealed himself in nature in a way that all humans are responsible to acknowledge, to worship, to seek after, and to thank him as the creator. But that's not what humanity has done. That's not what we have done. And we're going to inevitably be considering a lot of that throughout this psalm. But there is another way that God has revealed himself. He's revealed himself as a redeemer. He's spoken of himself as the Holy One who makes holy those who are not holy. The Word of God, which we call the Scriptures, the Bible, is his special revelation. It's God's testimony of himself, about what he requires, about how we're not holy, and about salvation. He is not just the one who made this big, beautiful, awe-inspiring universe, but he allowed his creatures to walk away from him so that he could do what the Holy Trinity planned to do before time began. God the Son would enter into time and space he would put on flesh, and he would save sinners. All of this, too, we're going to consider from Psalm 19. And lastly, by way of introduction, C.S. Lewis says this about Psalm 19. It's one of the greatest, greatest poems in all of the Psalter, and it's one of the greatest lyrics in all of the world. And so without anything left to say, let's look to Psalm 19, and I'll read it aloud for us. To the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world, and in them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man, runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, 
making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let, me not, let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Praise be to God for his words. Well, let's dive right into this, and let's look at the heart of the matter. I have three points for us, I think, and a reflection or two, so we're just going to go through this psalm. Number one, the the words of creation. We're going to look at the words of creation. So verse one, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. And this image here, right, when he starts talking about day and night and the sun and all this stuff, here's, here's this image that's painted for us. It's as if David is looking at the universe, the great expanse, the heavens, the skies, and they're looking down on creation. The universe looks at creation, and it looks at all of what God has done, and it's just pouring and oozing and just constantly exuberating the glory of God as it watches creation do what God made it to do. That's this imagery here. It's constantly just declaring the power and the marvel of God, the creator. It says, day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. Day to day and night to night is poetically describing, right, this consistency of creation. The sun comes up and it goes down from our perspective. We've, of course, learned from modernity that we're actually going around the sun. But from our perspective, the sun does this, right? So this is what David is describing. Day after day, night after night, just creation's just doing what God created it to do. But even deeper, consider how day and night, the rotation of the, of the earth but the, and the way the sun and where it is shining and, and hitting the earth, how that contributes to seasons, how that contributes to the agricultural calendar, how everything just works together with creation, the ecosystem, the solar systems, all the systems just working together perfectly to fulfill what God created it to do. All of creation, day and night, everything is speaking words. It's pouring out words of its creator, of its intelligent creator. Verse 3 and 4, there's no speech, right? It's not that they're literally talking, right? It's without words, it's without sounds. But the glory and the wisdom of God can be observed by anyone who would just look at creation. As, as uh, anyone who would just study a seed and how it grows. If anyone would just study the way animals operate, the way the world just happens to be perfect and operates together in unity, and whether we're here or not, it's going to do that. Creation just does what God created it to do. It's pouring out the wisdom and the power of God. This is true about the largest star the sun, which heats the earth from millions and millions and millions of miles away. And it's true about the minutest plants and insects. 
in verse 4 through 6. David doesn't know what we know today about the solar system or the Earth's ecosystem, but he's metaphorically describing with the day and the night being like a tent which the sun comes out of. It's like a husband who comes, who's on his honeymoon, a husband and wife, they're on their honeymoon, and the husband wakes up after becoming one with his wife, and he walks out of his room with joy. Or like a strong man, a champion, who's excited about his strength, and he's going to run his race. This is what the sun, the sun shines with radiance, and it, and it makes its circuit with strength. It does what it's going to do. And just as nothing can be hidden from its heat, nothing can be hidden from the glory of God displayed in all creation. Every detail of creation is covered in the fingerprints of its creator, our God. And maybe it's good for you to know, if you don't already, that this glory is not speaking of a, of a glory in terms of morality. This glory is about God's existence and his power. This glory is what should lead us to seek God and to worship him, to see his beauty and to want to know him. But this is not what we've done. Instead, Romans 1, Paul says that we see that glory, we see the truth of God, and we deny it. We suppress the truth. We make idols out of the sun. We make idols out of the animals. We make idols out of everything, and we run from our creator because ultimately we're very selfish, prideful sinners. Modernity has been a bit different. Instead of making physical idols, we just deny God's existence and we idolize rationality regarding creation. And don't quote me here because I'm no scientist and this isn't an apologetics class. But as I was reading and studying, I learned that for centuries, the prevailing view of the universe was the steady state, which says that the earth or that the universe had no beginning and that it's eternal. And to make a long story short, telescopes got better. We were able to know more. Scientists learned that planets were flying away from the earth at fast speeds, right? And so what that meant, along with other experiments and studies, is that it had to begin somewhere. If it's all expanding, it had to begin somewhere. And many scientists didn't like this discovery. And still, scientists would love to reject these findings because they point to a beginning, a first cause. And this points to God. This is what the Bible, specifically Psalm 19, is telling us. But it can't be God to our culture. It can't be. That's foolish. It's got a big bang. That's what created all this, a big bang. The Big Bang Theory was then formulated once we realized that there had to be a beginning. A ball of gases, mostly hydrogen, just exploded and everything just perfectly works together now. I'll share this story before moving on. Robert Jastral, he was the founder uh, and former director of NASA's Godard Institute of Space Studies. And he was amused at the reactions of his fellow scientists who hated finding that the universe had a beginning. And in his book called God and Astronomers, he concludes with this witty parable. For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. And as he pulls himself over the rock, he's greeted by a band of theologians who've been sitting there for centuries 
The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. David knew less about the sun than any of these scientists, and he praised God more for his handiwork. It screams of the glory of God. I'm going to move on to verses 7 through 10. So we've just looked at the words of creation. Now we're going to look at the words of God. So just for a moment, though, let us come, I'm going to come out of this psalm, and I'm going to briefly and devotionally consider the special revelation of God. First, it's foolishness to the world. The revelation of God is foolishness to the world, especially to the wise of the world. As I learned in an ethics class in uh, my time in my first two years of school, philosophy and Greek myths, all this stuff, it sounds very wise. I can tell you about mo- uh, monistic views of reality, dualistic views of reality, or a pluralistic view of reality. I could tell you what you know, they would say is real and how consciousness is just this crazy thing that we're all experiencing like a movie or like the Matrix. We could get all into the details. And at the end of the day, I think that God created the universe. And the way I know that is because he told us in his word. But this is foolishness to the world. Instead, we would rather... Philosophers would rather go to deductive or inductive reasoning, to experience or to science. And all of those are much more prestigious. They're much more academic. They're much more trustworthy to the world. But God has revealed himself in the scriptures. And this is what we believe. I believe that God created everything. We believe that God created everything and that we're sinners and that he sent his son to save us. And the reason I know that is because he had it written down for us. This is the special revelation of God. And when it comes to the scriptures, there's the first five books of Moses, known as the Torah. There's the prophets, and there's all the writings. And the Old Testament contained both. Although it wasn't fully known how redemption would happen, the Old Testament contained both law and gospel. Both law and gospel. And in his special revelation, he tells us who he is, what he requires, and what we must do if we're going to have a right relationship with him. And it's hearing the word of Christ that saves us. It's hearing of this word that became flesh to uh, fulfill the law in every way we have failed it that saves us. It's hearing these words that produces faith in us. It's the gospel that brings life. It's the law that convicts us. It's the gospel that brings life. And it's the law that guides us from here on out. This is the special revelation of God. And so now, in these next few verses, what we're going to consider is the law. Now, he's going to say the law, the testimony, the fear of the Lord, the precepts, the commands. And we all should understand this as the words of God. He's being clear that he's talking about all of the counsel of God's word. just want to make that point, and you can see that as we go through it. And then last thing before we dive into this, it's important for us to remember, as we've been told many times, the uses of the law right? The first use, the law condemns us. It shows us that God is holy, and it shows us that we are not, right? The second use, or and, and then it drives us in that way when it threatens us and shows us that we're not holy. It shows us our need of a Savior, our need for holiness, shows us and drives us to Christ Jesus. And the second use is to warn us of the evil of breaking his law. There's all kinds of evil that comes when we don't obey the law. And so in a civil use, it guides us. It's a way to live life. If you do good, things, things go well. If 
you break the law, things will not go well. In a general sense, in a general sense. And then the third use for the Christian, it guides us. It tells us how to live before God and how to live with each other. And it's a perfect guide for our souls. And so without any further ado, let's just look to verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The word of God is perfect, he says. It can revive the soul. The word revive here is completely talking about conversion language. It's, it's literally that the word of God is perfect in threatening. It's perfect in convicting a soul, and it's perfect in leading them to salvation and bringing them to life. It is perfect in that way. And then second part of this verse, the testimony of the Lord is sure making wise the simple. It can be trusted. It's full of wisdom. It is the source of wisdom. It's the beginning and the end of wisdom. And those souls who are revived learn to fear the Lord from his testimony. And they begin this journey of wisdom, and they continue the journey of wisdom in and through the word of God. Verse 8, specifically speaking of the commandments of God. They are righteous, and to a righteous person, they make the heart glad. The righteous are God's people, and they love God, and they love him, and they walk in his ways. They walk in his ways, and this is an example of the third use of the law. The second part of verse 8, that the Lord is pure. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. We have a thousand misconceptions and prejudices and errors that fog and obscure our perception of things and our perception of God and our perception of each other. And the commandments of the Lord enlighten us and they remove all of that and give us true knowledge and true wisdom on what the truth is and how to see life and how to see each other, what God is really like and what we are really like. The commandments of the Lord do this. It's perfect. In verse 9, the fear of the Lord is clean. What's meant here is in place of the law of God or the words of God is the effect of the law of God. It produces the fear of God. And so this is what um, is saying here. The fear of the Lord is pure. The word of the Lord is pure and it endures forever. So what's being communicated here is that the word is pure and it endures forever. But instead of saying the word of God, it's using the effects of the word of God. The fear of God is pure, enduring forever. Second half of verse 9, the fear of the Lord, excuse me, his law is righteous and his justice is true and righteous as well. The way he has planned all things, the way he judges the world, his decrees, what he's decided to do is righteous. It's true. It's good. It's clearly what he's saying. In verse 10, this little, uh, it kind of changes the pace, right? So verses 7 through 9 was this, this poetic A, B, A, B, A, B type um, imagery, right? Just reiteration of the law of the Lord, of the words of God, what they do and what they're like. And then he says that they're more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. There's a saying, if you will, the old are out for money and the young are out for pleasure. I know that's a little, you know, not true because we're all out for both in our flesh We all fit into both those categories at one point in our life. Nonetheless, gold for the old and honey for the young. Maybe we that's a good devotional way to consider this. Anyway, you may search 
we may search and have financial security and the finest of earthly treasures. And if that is all that we have, we've got nothing. We've got absolutely nothing. And along with this, we may search for pleasure. And the world has all kinds of ideas for pleasure. I mean, a lot of them. And if you listen to what the world says will give you pleasure, you'll get pleasure. And you'll be so consumed with yourself, that, and it feels so good, and it will kill you. It'll kill you, and it'll kill everybody you know. Because it's all about you. But what is best then? What is best? It's best to have a soul that's been made alive to the Lord. A heart that rejoices in the precepts of the Lord. Eyes that are enlightened to perceive everything through the truth. The truth which endures forever and is righteous altogether. This is what's best. And this is why it's more to be desired than gold. More to be desired than any pleasure we could find in this life. It's a simple life around the word of God. And then in verse 11, we get a warning and a reward, right? It says, moreover, by them is your servant warned. In having and studying and meditating on God's law, we're warned of the wreckage that sin will bring. We are warned of the wreckage of hating God. We're warned of the wreckage of a life that doesn't care about God, that has everything the world can offer, money and pleasure. And in the end, those will bring death. And you will have no security and you will end to have no pleasure. So by them, your servant is warned. And then also, there's reward in keeping them. Now, it's my opinion that this isn't speaking of God rewards those who keep his word. Right? This isn't a, if you do right, you get rewarded for righteousness. If you do wrong, you're going to get rewarded for wrong. That is true. But I think in the poetic way that David is writing, what he's communicating is that there is joy and peace in keeping the law of the Lord. There is joy and there is peace in being one who walks in the way of righteousness, who's living unto righteousness. And then something interesting happens with David in this next portion of the song. Because the law and the gospel are at work. So the last portion of our text, verse 12, 13, and 14, the law and the gospel at work. And considering God's revelation of himself, David sees God's perfection, the glory and the power and the wisdom of God revealed in nature in his perfect testimony of himself. And just as nothing can be hidden from the heat of the sun, likewise, the perfect, pure, righteous word of God penetrates and examines and exposes human beings. No one can escape it. And so David ends up in prayer. After viewing all this, David ends up in prayer. I have hidden errors. Sin is so deep in me that I don't even know half the reasons or the ways that I don't do what is right and what is true. I accidentally do what is wrong. I know myself in part, but you know fully, O oh Lord, how imperfect I truly am. O oh Lord, forgive me for my sins, David says. But there are also temptations that arise from around me and in me. And those wrong things beg me to come into play. And my heart fails me. And my flesh is weak. And I think about something. I know it's wrong. I shouldn't do it. And I do it anyway. Forgive me, O oh Lord. Preserve me and guard me from evil. 
Give grace that I wouldn't willfully run towards sin, David prays. Because the perfect word of God is showing David all of these things. The law of the Lord is perfect. And it has caused David to see clearly. It causes us to see clearly. And it exposes the perfection and the righteousness of God. But then what happens to David? He's reminded and he's held by mercy and grace of God that's also revealed in his word. God has revealed his glory in nature and he's given us the revelation of himself in the scriptures. In this psalm, David is meditating on both. And so he appeals to his rock and to his redeemer that these words and these meditations would be acceptable in his sight. At the heart of the matter, David is saying, please accept me, God. Please accept me, God. And David would be accepted. But it's not on account of his seeing God's glory in creation. It's not on account of his worship. It's not on account of his awareness of God's commandments. It's not on account of his asking for forgiveness. It's not on account of any of those things. It's on account of Christ Jesus, the one whom all creation was made by, through, and for. The one whom all the scriptures find their yes and their amen. The one who was promised to reverse the curse brought by our first father, Adam. He's the offspring of Abraham, who was the one who would be a blessing to all the nations. He's the greater Moses, who would lead his people out of slavery and eternal bondage and condemnation to sin and death. He's the perfect fulfillment of the Ten Commandments and the moral law. He's the one to whom all the sacrificial system pointed to and revealed. He's the king from David who would sit on an everlasting throne. He's the rock and the redeemer. He's David's hope and he's our hope. This is assurance. This is the assurance that David would be accepted by God. This is our assurance that we will be accepted by God. The word of God became flesh. He was born into creation. God wrapped up in human flesh. God of the universe. I love this saying, but you show me in all of the world a God who bleeds. A God who would come down and wrap himself in humanity. Put himself under the law. In the creation that he made, God of the universe sits in Mary's arms and he's crying to save us. And he lived a perfect life and he never sinned. He was the one who walked this earth who was truly acceptable to God. But he was crushed for us, for our iniquities. The only one who could be accepted was crushed so that we will always be accepted. We will never be rejected. And he took his own blood to the holy of holies before God the Father. And his sacrifice was accepted by God. On behalf of all of those who would trust in him. And he got up from the dead never to die again. And he's seated by the Father right now. And he's coming to get us. As he is right now, we will be soon and very soon. And he's interceding for us right now, and he's praying for us. We will make it. We will pilgrim. As we're on this pilgrimage home, we will make it. The king of glory sits on a throne, and he's praying for us. 
interceding for us. And the Father is never deaf to hear his plead for our case. Never deaf. So in closing, I just want to reflect on a few things. The point of creation. God is not a glory hound. God didn't need us. He didn't need us to be created so that he could get glory. But he wanted those on whom he could bestow his gifts. It brings him glory when we enjoy him, when we enjoy his gifts, when we enjoy each other. But of course that's not what we did. We abused all of that and ran into rebellion. And so what's the way he gets glory now? Other than his justice, he sent his son to die. And his glory now comes when we cling to his Messiah. This whole entire testimony is about Jesus coming to be our salvation, and he didn't fail. So we show up here, and we cling to the Messiah, and God gets glory. As we cling to the Messiah, we're sanctified, we're purified, we're constantly reminded of the way we should live of what's wrong, of what's right, of how to take care of each other, how to love one another. And the Lord gets, God gets glory in that. So we cling to Jesus because Jesus was always the plan. And the next thing to reflect on in closing is the law and the gospel. Just to reiterate, maybe this is just a closing and reiteration. But we see our sin And we're driven to the mercy of God in Christ Jesus. The law will always do this. The law will always do this. It revives our soul. And it creates in us a life of repentance. A life that sees our sin and we run from it. Not to keep justification, not to earn it, or not to make it more secure. But because we are justified, we look at the law and we continually are freed to run from sin and to run to Jesus Christ as our assurance. And then we're we're warned, right, to remember the ruin that sin will cause. St. Augustine said, sin is a punishment in itself. It always brings ruin. Now or in the end, it will always bring ruin. And so we're warned of the evil that is in the world. We're warned of when we step into uh, things that will not go well for us. And in that way, we warn each other, brother, don't go that way. Sister, don't go there. And then the third use, we're guided by the perfect law of the Lord. It's making us wise. It rejoices the heart that we find in this psalm. It enlightens the eyes. And all of that helps us, guides us to love God and to love neighbor. And honestly, as we looked at last week, Psalm 1 and 2, and in meditating on the law day and night, I honestly, as I'm just even thinking about my own life and maybe why I don't do that as much, or maybe why I don't like to sometimes in my flesh, is because the law is all about others. It's all about God and it's about you guys in my life. It's not about me. It's not something that I get to do and take credit for. It's like if I could check off the box and there was some spiritual disciplines and some things I could do, then that would, I would really enjoy that. But instead, it shows me how much I really don't love you guys. Right? It exposes those things and it, and it shows me what real life would look like for me to trust Christ and to love you. To trust Christ and to love you. And so I've been asking myself these questions. Am I aware 
of the law of God as I go about my day? Am I just distracted? Am I just so busy and distracted that I just don't even care because I'm just doing what's next on my calendar? The kingdom of self. The question I've been asking myself is, was I present to the needs of my neighbors today? Who was I around today? Most every day is Justin and my wife. Two people. I got two people. And a lot of days I'm like, no, I wasn't. You know? Because I'm only living in the kingdom of self. But here's the thing. Because of Christ Jesus, I'm free to keep trying. Because of Christ Jesus, I'm free to keep confessing. Because of Christ Jesus, I have no guilt. And I don't have to go about this with dread of condemnation. Because my hope and your hope for assurance, for righteousness, for forgiveness can never be found in my delight in the law or your delight in the law because we fail. But Jesus didn't. He meditated on that thing day and night without fail, and he did it for you and he did it for me. Your hope is forever and always Jesus. He is enough. Saints, you are accepted by God on account of him. Let's enjoy the law together. Let's pray.